This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Wednesday, August the 3rd, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Back in the mix and happy to be back in the big chair. Coming up on the show today, Marco Flalo will preview this year's Samsung Unpacked. All about this year's Vines Art Fest. Art? Well, why shouldn't we talk to Clover Thursday, who will discuss the importance of art in the park events for local artists across Canadian City. The Manchester City Football Club, or soccer team, has developed a new smart scarf to gauge how their fans are reacting to the game. Mike Agarbo will tell you more about that. And Jenny Bovard will discuss food and culture in Montreal after a trip to MTL to the 514. And Jenny will share her tips on how to make a food plan when you're about to take a big trip. But let's start the show with our top story of the day. It's related to food security and the war in Ukraine. A ship with Ukrainian grain has cleared, has been cleared to travel to Lebanon. Charles de Ledesma explains. Turkey's defense ministry says the first grain ship carrying Ukrainian corn is preparing to travel through Istanbul's Bosporus Strait and travel on to its final destination, Lebanon. The ministry says an inspection team has finished its review aboard the Sierra Leone flag Rizzoni, anchored off Istanbul's coast in the Black Sea, near the mouth of the Bosporus. The Rizzoni sounded its horn as the inspection team left the ship. The UN says it's carrying over 26,000 tons of corn. I'm Charles Tilladesma. And while the world continues to deal with energy supply issues related to the war, Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie will play host to her German counterpart in Montreal. Germany and Russia have been grappling with natural gas supplies as Russia is limiting supply through a recently maintained pipeline. So that event taking place a little bit later today. We'll have some sound for that one on the show tomorrow. Let's go elsewhere in Canada where wildfires are impacting the community near Penticton, British Columbia. Wildfire Service Information Officer Mark Drysdale says the situation is very dynamic, but firefighters are using all available resources to contain the flames. Ski hills are well plumbed, so it's actually a really good resource to be used whenever there's a fire in the area. So you just heard from Drysdale talking about snowmaking machines and ski resorts, which are being used to fight the fires. Apex Mountain Resort General Manager James Shellman says the idea to use the equipment originated 30 years ago and has remained in the fire prevention plan ever since. We're one of the few resorts, there's only a couple actually, that have snowmaking from the top of the mountain to the bottom. So we do have that infrastructure in place and we are using it to our advantage to fight this fire. About 300 properties near the mountain and near Penticton have been evacuated. Looking at wildfires in the United States, two more bodies have been discovered within a burn zone of a wildfire in Northern California. Alex Stone has more. Initially, firefighters found the bodies of two adults in a car. The sheriff saying it appeared that they had tried to escape the flames. Skid marks could be seen where they had been ramming to get through their front gate, but they were overcome by flames in their driveway. 
Now the Siskiyou County Sheriff's Department says search teams have found two more bodies in separate homes in the fire zone. It brings a number of dead in the fire to four. Alex Stone, ABC News. And let's come back north of the border where a team of researchers is heading to remote remote areas of the Northwest Territories to collect first field data on zombie fires. Zombie fires smolder underground during the winter and reignite in the spring. Jennifer Baltzer is an associate professor of biology at Wilfrid Laurier University and Canada Research Chair in Forests and Global Change. All of the sites are really far from roads, so it's not, it's it's a really challenging type of work to do. And that's, I think that's part of why no one's been able to tackle it previously is just because accessing these sites is really challenging. And Richard Olson is the manager of fire operations with the Territory's Department of Environment and Natural Resources. From an operational perspective, we want to get a better understanding of the extremes and the conditions that they exist uh, in order to better monitor and predict and prepare for holdover fires and how we're going to respond. Researchers are heading to around 20 sites accessible only by helicopter where holdover fires burned in the territory. And let's wrap up here with a story from the world of politics that will relate to our daily poll. The Conservative Party of Canada will host their final official leadership debate tonight. There will be no podium, no audience, and a few candidates are skipping out too. Karen Rebo looks ahead. The three participants in the Ottawa event are former Quebec Premier Jean Charest, rural Ontario MP Scott Aitchison, and Roman Baber, a former Ontario legislator who Doug Ford booted from caucus for opposing COVID-19 lockdowns. The three will be placed around a table for this event, billed as part debate, part roundtable. Missing from that table will be rivals Pierre Poiliev and Leslin Lewis. Each face hefty fines for skipping out on this third and final official debate. The Three who do show up will discuss such topics as health care, climate change, and Indigenous peoples. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. I don't mean to overly grapple with Karen on that number, but hefty fines, it's 50 grand. I don't know, like that's hefty for some folks, but if you have like $2 million or $3 million in your electoral war chest, what's 50 G's? Anyway, that is going to relate to our daily poll, which we'll get to in just a second. But let's get to the results of yesterday's daily poll when we asked you, how long do you think it will take to eliminate the sale of gas use of gas fueled vehicles? 8.9% of you said 10 years, 28.9% of you said 20 years, 15.6% of you said it'll be 30 plus years, and 46.7% of you said they will never disappear. We had some Twitter responses at AMI Audio on Twitter. I imagine it will depend on the country. Europe, 10 years. Well, U.S. will have even bigger and less efficient gas guzzlers. That came from Anna M. And Studio Brock tweets in, I answered, they'll never disappear because I feel collectors will keep classics and special cars around. Gas stations will eventually disappear and cars will change, but there will always be someone running on gas and diesel. So at AMI-audio on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, that's where you find us on social media. That's where you answer the poll. And today's poll relates to the last story I played you about the conservative leadership debate tonight. I'm asking you, should political candidates be obligated to participate in official debates? Yes or no? Should political candidates be obligated to participate in official debates? Yes or no? And notice I used the word official there. I'm always fine-tuning these questions to make sure they make the most sense possible because certainly if it was every single community-organized event, that could be a little bit of overkill because, you know, if we're talking about 30 or 40 debates during an election campaign, 
listen, that might be good for democracy, but I can see how that one would be a little bit of overkill. But if your party that you're running to be the leader for is throwing official debates and they're only doing three, you should probably have to be at all of them. I don't know if the penalty should be as far as disqualification, but maybe it should be. Because like I said, some folks might think of 50 grand, 50 Gs, $50,000 as a huge fine. But for some of these folks, it's a slap on the wrist. If they've raised millions of dollars, what does it matter if it's 50 grand? They just get to avoid the event and avoid the scrutiny. As part of the political process, if we're going to have official debates, we should have all the official representatives. That's what democracy is. Grace Scofield, welcome back. What do you think? Thanks, Dave. That is exactly it. If they're going to be running for a political party and they need to speak in public and give the public the chance to criticize and make their own decisions and figure out what they do support with this candidate and what they don't support. So it's either, yeah, raising raising the fines or disqualification, which I mean, I do think is a little far, but it's extreme. It's very extreme, especially for a debate, but it's very important. And I think for me personally, if I'm going to vote for, and they talk when they speak, what their, their public speaking skills are, Mm -hmm. how they interact with other candidates, how they interact with the public. I think those are really important things in political candidates. So yeah, I do think that there either needs to be a heftier fine or as you said, something really extreme like disqualification. There's got to be some kind of penalty. And I do understand that when we're talking about democracy at the end of the day, it's the will of the people who will vote. And certainly when we're talking about party politics and party leadership, that's not quite the grandest extension of democracy. There's already some sort of weirdness and tenting that goes on there in terms of bringing people into the mix. But yeah, I think there has to be some kind of incentive or some kind of disincentive to ensure that people are not uh, going to be skipping out on these things. Grace, thank you for this. Let's bring in Mike Ross. Mike, you've been helping me out by filling in on the back end of my vacation. So thank you for that. Welcome back to you. What do you think of this daily poll question? I I love it. Um, I will say this uh, about that, that $50,000 amount um, being a drop in the bucket. Here's the difference though, uh, of, of that bucket being, one's personal fund versus a a fund built up by donations. Pierre Poilievre really he he puts himself out there as the um the the financially the fiscally responsible candidate, the conservative fiscal responsible candidate, and yet he's willing to blow fifty thousand dollars of members' donation money to not show up for a debate. That to me, as a donor, if I was a supporter of his, that that's a red flag to me. You're you're throwing away, you're willing to throw away waste, right? He he he's constantly talking about government waste. Well, what are you doing throwing away fifty thousand dollars? That to me stands out as an issue, as a red flag if I were a conservative donor. So uh I'm I'm with Everybody so far, I think that there should be an increased penalty. It it should really sting. But I think even more uh, alarming to me is this perceived lack of concern and and, and lack of uh, membership outcry that Pierre Poilievre, this candidate for fiscal responsibility, is willing to throw away $50,000, Leslin Lewis uh, as well, skipping it, and throwing away $50,000 of their donation uh, money of their of, of their donors funds mm-hmm. 
I, I do want to offer up the counterpoint here that for someone like Pierre Polyev, who's clearly in the lead right now, all the tracking polls show him significantly in the lead, he may feel as though there's no good that can come of him being there. And I'm sure some of his supporters would actually say, as someone in his case who's somewhat running against institutions and social norms, then perhaps they would actually see this as a sign of strength, saying Pierre is his own man who does his own thing and we don't care about the 50 grand. That's just institutions coming down upon us. So I just want to offer up that counterpoint because I want to make sure that we're not sort of falling into this trap of just finger wagging at, at uh, politicians for not doing what what is expected of them because I it's think- not no 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 it's not what's expected of them it's it's about the track record that this individual has already laid out for us to see Pierre Poilievre has been very vocal about politicians and and, and specifically government officials and and waste right like the, the word waste and 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 wasteful spending has been thrown out there by Pierre Poilievre many times and this isn't about government stripes and and your your support of whatever party uh, anyone out there might be supporting this is strictly based on the fact that he has accused the prime minister and the liberals of being a party that says one thing and does another. And he is doing exactly the same thing right here. That's all I'm saying. I'm not yeah. talking political oh, stripes here. Oh. This is strictly his record. And, and, and if his supporters listen, political supporters, they're like racehorses. They put on those blinders and they don't see in the other lanes. They only see their one lane now more than ever. But I think in this case, um, you know, you, you've got, a, a politician who has called out the another party on exactly this many, many times. And now he's, I, I don't think, I don't believe he's being called out on it by his own members or really by a, a very loud majority of Canadians. I'm, I'm not disputing the point you're making, Mike. The point you're making is really good. I'm simply suggesting that any, any perception of criticism that we're offering here will be viewed under the lens of, here's someone who's trying to buck against institutional trends, and, and we're falling into the trap by offering that criticism, saying, you must do this, you must do that. It was the same thing when he started talking about the Bank of Canada. And yes, mm-hmm. there's no, the Prime Minister should not be able to fire the Bank of Canada, uh, the, the governor of the Bank of Canada. That is is the truth. But sometimes we fall into these political chattering classes conversations where we go, oh, 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 we kind of snicker and laugh and say, look at this. We've caught you, Pierre. And all he's going to do is turn around and say, no, oh, absolutely. I caught You're you. Right. Uh, Mike, 100%. thank you for this. At AMI Audio is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Let's go back to Grace Scofield, who has the National Weather Update. Oh, Grace, we need your microphone. Oh, not hearing Grace. You know what I'm going to do? Maybe I could read the weather. Everyone knows reading the weather is indeed my dream. We've had a couple gremlins running around on us today, so allow me to step in. The joy of weather reporting. Let's start out in the Atlantic provinces in St. John's, Newfoundland. Mainly cloudy, a 40% chance of drizzle in the morning, and a few showers that will continue throughout the day. A high of 24 degrees. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, cloudy with a 30% chance of drizzle this morning. And a mix of sun and cloud, there is a heat warning in effect and a high of 29. In Montreal, Quebec, mix of sun and cloud, high of 28 degrees. In Ottawa, keeping it simple, sunny and a high of 27. In Toronto, a mix of sun and cloud, a 30% chance of showers as the day moves along with the possibility of a thunderstorm. The high is 31, although it was pretty lovely this morning on the walk. That didn't last very long because I sprained my foot in Ottawa, so then I had to Uber the rest of the way. 
not from Ottawa, to work. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, a mix of sun and cloud with a 40% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm and a high of 25. Into the prairies in Winnipeg, mainly cloudy, clearing in the afternoon. Looking at some wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour and a high of 22. Look at that, the wind gusts in effect in the prairies. In Saskatoon, a mix of sun and cloud and a high of 25. In Calgary, a mix of sun and cloud and a high of 27. In Edmonton, a 30% chance of showers, a risk of thunderstorm late in the afternoon, and a high of 20. Kind of a chilly day in Edmonton. In Yellowknife, sunny with a mix of sun and cloud, and a high of 20. In Vancouver, cloudy with showers beginning in the afternoon, and a high of 17. Wow, even chillier in Vancouver. Kind of a beautiful August day. Really think about it. And in Victoria, increasing cloudiness, a 60% chance of showers in the afternoon and a high of 21. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Coming up next, Mark Flalo of Double Tap TV will discuss and preview this year's Samsung Unpacked event. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's look ahead to next week when Samsung is going to be holding their unpacked event and showing off some of their new wares. Mark Aflalo of Double Tap TV is here to help us with that. Of course, you can find Double Tap TV on AMI-tv Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time, and you can find Mark Aflalo in Montreal. Hey, good morning, Mark. Oh, we have to bring Mark's mic up. Better now? Yeah, we got Mark. We got Mark loud and clear, loud and clear. I'm well. Always nice to chat with you, Mark, and always like talking about what's going on in the world of Samsung. So we will dive, obviously, deeper once we actually have the event next week on August the 10th. But what are some of the anticipations leading up to the event? Well, the biggest anticipation is that Samsung seems to be going all in on folding devices. This is something they've been alluding to over the past couple of years. We haven't seen every iteration of their their flip and their folding devices necessarily here in Canada. But rumor mill says that everything they're going to be announcing has some kind of flexible screen and or folding device to it. This is something that's really kind of shifting the paradox in terms of what they offer. Not only are we expecting some new flipping and folding phones, they're expecting a little bit lower price point, which we'll get to in a second. But we're also expecting some pretty cool advancements when it comes to their smart watch. This is something that they've been working on for the past several months in a new partnership with Google. After switching back off of Google, now they're back back on with Google. A little on again, off again relationship there. <laughs> and uh, and some new Galaxy Buds. So this is the kind of the precursor. Normally this happens earlier in the year. We really kind of expect this even before the summer. Mm-hmm. But they've pushed the date kind of to coincide with some Apple announcements in September. But it gives them a little bit closer um, launch window in terms of the market of smartphone purchases, which happens in the latter part of the year. Mark, as you said, we'll, we'll talk about price points in just a second here and maybe some of the economical ways that people can get their hands on this new technology. But you mentioned flipping and folding. We know we know Samsung has started down that pathway for a couple of years now with the Z Flips and the Z Folds, trying to bring back some of that older vibe of the cell yeah. phone. Why do you think the doubling down on this? Do you think the market has actually commanded and demanded this kind of doubling down? It's hard. It's hard to definitively answer that because the market, if all mass in terms of all the smartphone sales, Samsung really still is 
a market leader when it comes to the use of, of smartphones. Apple is obviously right behind them. And that's really because of certain markets that Samsung is in that Apple is not. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you look at North America, it's definitely, <clears throat> excuse me, an iPhone, an iPhone dominated market. But the second you go overseas, that really does shift a lot. So what Samsung is seeing and the data they're seeing obviously leads them to believe that this flipping and folding devices are becoming more popular, but not only just because of sales, but they're seeing an influx in demand of people asking and wanting these at a better price point because to mm -hmm, date mm -hmm. these phones have been upwards of 15 to 17 something even $2000 when you look at the Canadian dollars so it's been it's been expensive but they're seeing an uptick and and they're going to go all in on this and it's going to be an interesting gamble and, and an interesting bet as someone who does not drive and cannot drive i do see the merit in the flipping and folding in the sense that you might be able to more efficiently carry your phone around a bigger phone around in a smaller pocket. So I can see where perhaps there would be some utility there that they're identifying. People still want a six point something inch screen, but the phone is too big for their pocket or it's too yeah. big for their purse or their clutch. So I can see where maybe there might be some little bit of a tingle there where folks would say this is a more efficient use of space. Although as we've talked about before on the show too, is the hinge actually durable enough for long-term sustainable use? Well, I think they've gotten better with the hinge. I think that technology has improved. I think they've definitely made a lot of improvements there, but it's not only the hinge. I find it's also just the overall form factor of the device. Sure, it might fold over, but if it's two inches thick, it's still going to be a pretty bulky phone. Yeah. <laughs> they need to get the mix of both. Something Microsoft's been doing pretty well with the Surface Duo, even though it's not the most popular device. But it shows you how thin they can actually go mm -hmm. with both sides so that when you do fold it, it's about the thickness of today's modern smartphones. That being said... Microsoft hasn't gone in on the folding screens themselves. They, they still use separate screens. That's where I have a lot of questions about because the durability of something that folds like that, it, it doesn't fold completely flat. There's mm -hmm. still a curvature in it, which allows the diodes and the information to travel back and forth. But still, to me, that's a pain point. You know, to see a crease, even if it's on an angle, it just gives me the illusion that this is not the most durable device, even though I know that it is. So, Mark, you mentioned price point that we'd yes. seen typically around sort of $1,500, $1,800, maybe even $2,000 for some of these devices. Are there any anticipations or any expectations of what the price point might come in at next week? There is, there is rumors going around that the folding device, so the one that is basically <clears> – <throat> sorry, you know, early morning. Fro dinners. Frog in the uh, throat, we get it, Mark. We get it. We understand. So the folding one that opens, um, I guess, like a book is going to be under the $1,500 U.S. mark. So that will still put it probably about $1,700 Canadian, which is still about four dollars to $500 cheaper than the previous generation. And then we're also hearing that the flipping device, the clamshell model, is going to come in at uh, just at the $1,000 mark. So, I mean, this is a pretty significant price drop in comparison to what mm -hmm. they used to mm -hmm. sell and in comparison to what other people are doing in the market in terms of flagship devices – it's kind of on par. Right. So some folks are going to look at those numbers and still say, ah, oh, gosh, it's a bit high. Oh, yeah. I just got, I just got oh, a yeah. new phone a couple of years ago. So what are some of the things that someone can potentially do if they do want this flip phone, they do want this, fo this folding phone, but they're a little turned off by the price point? Well, you know, the, the landscape has shifted in, our shifted in our country in terms of the carriers subsidizing phones. That being said, there are still opportunities to get older generations and even some discounts on newer generations by signing up to longer term plans. That's option number one. 
Number two is, uh, for example, right now, if you sign up to watch the Samsung Unpacked event at Samsung.com, you're going to get an instant $200 rebate on whatever is going to be announced. Ooh. So that's a good savings as well. However, if you're one of those people who doesn't necessarily have to hand me down devices like I'm stuck with in my family, there are a lot of trade-in programs. Some carriers offer them themselves. Companies like Best Buy offer them. If you look online, there's actual third-party companies that will do it, like Go Resell. Uh, a lot of different variations in terms of what the offer is. Oftentimes, you have to submit uh, you know, kind of details about the phone, then send it in. You'll find out exactly how much you're going to get. Companies like Apple, for example, let you go right into a store and just trade it up on the spot. So they'll do a little analysis right there. The, the challenge with a company like Samsung is they don't have any real Samsung stores mm -hmm. in Canada. So you're still stuck going to the Rogers, the Telus, and the Bell. And they don't necessarily have those trade-up programs like the other companies do. That being said, do a quick search online. Even Amazon has a trade-in program because they sell a lot of refurbished devices. Where do you think the the model for this or the, or the desire for companies to do this comes from? Is it because of the shortage of microprocessors? Can they pull parts from these older phones and incorporate them into new technology? They can take a, a certain amount of parts, but really it's about harvesting the plastics and the metals because there are gold, there's platinum, there's titanium, and other materials that can be easily recycled and then actually mm -hmm. manufactured into brand new components for new devices. There's, of course, the eco-friendliness. Making your device completely recyclable means that you you know, get a couple points on the, on the eco-friendly kind of radar um, as well. And at the same time, it's also incentive, incentive to get people to get into their newest devices. They want people in their newest devices. They want people experiencing the brand new stuff. And if they can give people a couple bucks off, of their already pretty ridiculous profit, then why not do it to get them into the new ones? You mentioned a couple different avenues there. Would you say there's one in particular that is the best value for a consumer? I, I particularly like the site Go Resell, uh, and that's C-E-L-L, -L, so like a play on the word cellular. Um, <laughs> it happens good. to that be a Montreal-based like company. You know, so that's pretty cool. And they seem to give me the best value for the devices that I might have on hand. That being said, it does vary and it can change from day to day. For example, today, the prices of the existing flip and fold are still pretty high. However, the day they announce these new devices, those devices are going to go on sale. So if you don't care about the newest and the latest and greatest and, and do want to still have that experience and use the older generation, you're going to get a pretty significant discount on that alone, <laughs> let alone some cash you can get in the pocket for selling your device. Yeah, the Dave Brown model. Always be a couple of years behind, but you can still find yourself a good device just a couple of years behind. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's how I roll, Mark. It's how I roll. That's how Luddites be. Uh, Mark. Thank you for this. All the best to you. My pleasure. We'll chat next week. Yes, indeedy. That's Mark Flalo. He's the co-host of Double Tap TV. You can find it Tuesdays on AMI-TV. And Mark joined us from Montreal. Coming up next, we'll talk about the importance of art in the park events for local artists across Canadian cities with community artist Clover Thursday. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index fell as it resumed trading after a long holiday weekend. Toronto's TSX index fell 187 points to close at 19,505. New York's Dow Jones average tumbled 402 points and the Nasdaq slipped 20. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index gained 147 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning a little lower at 77.72 cents U.S. Asian stock markets were mostly higher today as traders watched 
watched for signs trade might be disrupted by U.S.-Chinese tensions over U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Beijing announced a ban on imports of Taiwanese citrus and fish in retaliation, but no immediate major penalties have followed Pelosi's arrival. China also gave no indication it might target sensitive industries such as Taiwanese producers of processor chips needed by Chinese assemblers of smartphone and other electronics. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Every couple of months, we're always thrilled to be joined by community artist Clover Thursday to learn about experiences and opportunities for artists across the country. And Clover's here today to talk about art in the park events and how they benefit local artists across Canadian cities. Hey, good morning, Clover. Great to chat with you once again. Oh, we just need to bring up uh, Clover's mic there. Clover, give me give me a hello one more time there. Hello, hello. Hey, we got Clover. Fantastic. Hey, a Clover, when I say the term art in the park, it sounds pretty self-explanatory, but give me a sense of why they're so important and how they work for artists. Well, you know, that's the kind of beauty of them. They're simple. They're an idea of just like finding a public and accessible space and actually like um, either leading or participating in sort of a creative endeavor. And, you know, that can include other artists or people who are just curious and want to kind of create something together. Um, And um, any of those opportunities to connect with people in the community, I think, is always important for artists. Who are some of the driving forces involved in organizing these kinds of events? I would say like lots of really great like arts um, organizations like here locally we have um, Hamilton Artists Inc. Uh, Toronto has um, Ham- uh, oh, not Hamilton <laughs> Toronto um, Arts Council um, and tons of other smaller organizations and local governments often um, have uh, some attachment to it just from their arts and culture sort of sectors. So these are kind of the main like when you think of arts and parks with a bigger arts like lens, but I've seen even just local artists or local collectives make some really great events. So you used the word collaboration before Clover and and I'm curious about how these events might play out as a collaborative effort. I know when you put artists together, oftentimes collaboration will just happen, but does this have a collaborative, maybe performative creative element, or is it more just a shared space for people to show off their wares? it can be either or but there's definitely like an opportunity for collaboration you know you're in a space um you can be working on just depending on the intention of you know the organizers it can it can be almost solely collaborative coming together and kind of working on a big project you know that might be shared in the community or it's a place where you can come and work on something that you're working on and have that feedback and have that back and forth and you know hopefully be able to make those connections that carry on beyond you know that wonderful afternoon in the park. <laughs> Clover, so many <laughs> times we might think of art as being in a gallery or a museum, right? More of that stodgy environment. Why do you, th- <laughs> sorry, I, I don't mean, I don't, I don't mean to be judgy about the museums and the art galleries out there. Yeah, I know some of them aren't that stodgy. <laughs> I know some of them aren't that stodgy. I just, I just carry myself uh, uncomfortably in them. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, Clover, why, why do you think the great outdoors lends itself? to great art and creation of art and showcasing of art? I think it's that energy. Like, I think being outdoors is, for most people, a very inspiring place to be, especially, you know, 
the few times in Canada we have really nice weather, you know, um, the, <laughs> <laughs> the like two months. Um, but um, it's always a really nice place to kind of be with the sights and the sounds and the different sensations. And also, I think because it, it is like a low barrier of entry, usually these arts in the parks events are, you know, in in public parks. You know, all, all there is to kind of the barrier of entry is, you know, to get there. And thankfully, with some city planning, it's not too difficult to get to some of the larger parks. So. Yeah, I think about an experience I had in New Orleans, Louisiana, a couple of years ago, where you can just walk down the street and it's set up in a way to let artists show off their work outdoors, no matter where you are, whether it be sort of just off Bourbon Street or off in the Burbs, that that outdoor community art is something that is a driving part of the society. And I think that that's what it comes down to. It comes down to a little bit of civic planning that that can can then expose people to art in a a sort of a, a free or complex complimentary or easy way yeah definitely yeah and i think that's the thing with arts and accessibility like the more people engage with it the more people find importance and value in it and the more we flourish right so. mm-hmm. what's been your personal expense uh, experience at some of these events been like they have been really fun like they've definitely been like a fun like social kind of a networking opportunity for me but also like um, with even some of the smallest ones I've been in where it's like small little collectors that collectives having a little art jam or something and you're really connecting with people and sharing stories like and it kind of can branch out into later projects like it turned into a bit of a zine club when we kind of first all got together um, some artists an artist local artist ran just like a little hangout and whatnot and it was really it was really powerful to be able to hang out and like share stories while we were working and be creative together so I have a really positive experience with um, with arts in the parks and whatnot. And it's kind of folded into my practice as a community artist, because, mm. you know, um, setting up these spaces for people to and mainly children nowadays um, to kind of engage with arts is has been kind of a practice of mine recently. So, Which is, again, a great way to make sure we're reaching out and connecting people to art, which is so, so good. Clover, you mentioned the barrier to entry for some of these art in the park can actually be quite low or it can be a little bit more straightforward to put together. Do you have any tips for someone who might be watching or listening this morning who says, man, I know a bunch bunch of artists. I have some interesting arts. Do you have any tips on what they might do or how they might go about planning in arts in the park? Yeah, definitely. I think, again, like the first step is like, yeah, finding those artists or people who are interested in wanting to connect, but also location. Um, It's I think that's probably, I would want to say the hardest part about it, air quotations, just to find, okay, where is a place where we can set up, where, you know, people can get to, where, you know, maybe there's some shade, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, just those little things to consider, Um, but also kind of setting your intention for your sort of arts in the park event. Is it something that's like completely chill, bring your own stuff, work on some stuff? Is it more like a project that you kind of want to put together Um, or is it, um, you know, there's different kinds of things. Is it a zine club or story sharing thing? Is it, um, uh, you know, it's kind of like what do you kind of want to kind of get out of it as well? And, you know, what, what, how can people prepare to, you know, participate? 
Clover, you used the term on us twice there. So I need a definition <laughs> on the way out here. Zine club. What's a zine yeah. club? Zine clubs are great. Um, it's such like a it's such like an old term, apparently. I don't know if I'm showing my age, but <laughs> it's the idea of creating like self-published stories um, as simple as like folding up paper, um, you know, uh, and just like, you know, writing something out or drawing something out and just having that self-publishing kind of feeling um, apparently came out from those back in the days, those punk rock show days. Yeah. Where, yeah. See, you're, you remember? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I'm also, I'm also <laughs> aging rapidly. Someone pointed out to me last week that I'm almost middle-aged and I'm like, Oh, great. Thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm, I, but still young at heart, Clover, still young at heart. Hey, Clover, we got to scoot, but thank you for this. We always appreciate catching up. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and have a wonderful day. <laughs> That's community artist Clover Thursday. Let's bring in Mike Ross for the big business story of the day. So, Mike, while I was away yesterday, you guys had a daily poll about electric vehicles. Today, you've got a story about the BC EV rebate program. Yeah, this is kind of a neat story, David, and just the sort of the follow-up to the conversation we had yesterday that uh, BC's Energy Minister, uh, Minister of Mines and Low Carbon Innovation, uh, says that the maximum provincial rebate for battery electric, fuel cell electric, and long-range plug-in hybrid electric vehicles is going to climb $1,000 to $4,000 as the BC government looks to make these vehicles more accessible, more affordable. Now, eligibility is going to be based on income levels with an individual making up to $80,000 or a household earning up to $125,000 eligible for the maximum rebate. Now, those with a personal income above $100,000 or household households rather with incomes over $165,000 are no longer going to be entitled to that discount. BC says that based on their 2020 income tax returns, more than 90% of BC residents are eligible for a rebate and can save as much as $9,000 on the purchase of it or a lease of a new electric vehicle when combined with federal initiatives. So we'll see if people on board here with the big savings. I mean, we, we had a program like that in Ontario. It was canceled by the conservative government when they came into office uh, the, the in their first term. Uh, but uh, BC is one of those uh, provinces that usually on things like this is ahead of the curve a little bit. And uh, certainly in Western Canadian provinces, we've seen more and more sort of that shift towards putting in more charging stations uh, across uh, the provinces, making those more accessible and rebate programs uh, here in BC. Not only do they have one, they're upping the mm. amount of uh, dollars that are available to people. So yeah, good news there. There's always ripples with these kinds of stories, right? Because a month ago, we're talking about record high gas prices. And by the way, gas prices are still very, very high just because they're not a record high doesn't mean uh, they still aren't extremely high so oftentimes we get these ripples right that people have electric cars in the consciousness every week on the uh, tech trends segment that uh, we get provided by the associated press and abc there's always this manufacturer has a new electric vehicle this manufacturer has a new ev so they're growing in the consciousness the demand is seemingly growing as you mentioned the infrastructure is getting there so mike it only makes sense the governments are continuing to sort of go through that ripple and saying hey we want you to try and make the investment in these products, but we understand that maybe they're a little bit more expensive than your conventional uh, than your conventional vehicle. 
Yeah, and the, you know the, the the cynic in me looks at this and says, you know, as you point out, all these companies that are putting out vehicles and more vehicles and more vehicles. There's there's a ton of choice out there. There are a, a ton of different companies making all kinds of different vehicles. The one thing I'm not yet hearing a lot about is an improvement in the battery life in the strength of those batteries and their ability to withstand cold temperatures like here in Canada, because that impacts the charging power of those batteries in electric vehicles. So I want to hear more about the innovation that's happening, not just the number of brands that are making Mm -hmm. what we see a lot of. It kind of feels like, um, you know, baseball cards back in the 1990s, right? (laughs) Everybody made baseball cards. I got three (laughs) boxes in my living room that my nephews gave back to me uh, from uh, from my my days of collecting baseball and hockey cards, they were mass produced, but it doesn't mean that they're getting better. And that's what I want to hear more yeah, of. Yeah. I want to hear about these vehicles being better. You being able to take uh, a, one of those types of vehicles off road, take it camping, pulling a trailer. As we talked with Lawrence yesterday, that's what I want to hear more of. I don't need to hear about more models. I need to hear about better models. Yeah. We need the qualitative analysis, not just the quantitative analysis. Mike, thank you for this. You bet. That's Mike Ross with the big business story of the day. Coming up next, we'll talk about the Vines Art Festival in Vancouver with community reporter Amy Amanti. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's head all the way out west to Vancouver, BC to catch up with community reporter Amy Amanti. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dave. So, Amy, you are always keeping yourself engaged in the arts community. We just spent a lot of time talking to Clover Thursday about arts in the park events. Well, you're going to be taking part of the Vines Art Festival in Vancouver. What does this festival celebrate? Well, it's almost just like Clover was talking about. This is art in the park, uh, more or less. So the Vines Festival runs uh, August 3rd. So I believe that's today. Uh, All the way through (laughs) August 13th. I don't know what day it is these days, Dave. It's so busy around my life. I just, I wake up and I go, what's happening today? can confirm that it is indeed (laughs) August the 3rd today. Wonderful. Um, So I guess I better start preparing. Um, so yeah, the Vines <laughs> Festival is an outdoor festival and runs for this couple of weeks, always in August. Um, and what's interesting about it is, is that it actually was on, I performed in this festival last year in like the height of COVID almost because it was an outdoor festival. So there wasn't the same fear around being indoors and having to wear masks and all of those kinds of things, but it's really geared towards, um, helping unrepresented artists, um, connect with the land, perform with the land. And so I'm doing a piece that um, uh, that I'm going to perform on August the 12th at 7.30 p.m. at a place called New Brighton Park. Um, and it's all about inappropriate questions, the kinds of things that I get asked on the bus that are nobody's darn business. <laughs> okay, but now you'll make them the public's business and a public interest event. You better event. believe yeah. that I'm going to. <laughs> uh, Amy, are there going to be any kind of accessibility services or accessible performances available for audience members with a disability? Yeah, you bet there will be. Um, and I'm going to toot my own horn here, Dave. Toot toot, because last year when I worked with the Vines Festival, I said to them, 
what kind of representation do you have in your audience? What kind of representation do you have within your artist pool? And they're continually trying to develop that, right? Which is fantastic. Um, and they said, well, you know, we, we don't really get a lot of folks with disabilities coming out. I mean, we're in a park area, so some parks aren't accessible. So the two days that are performing, uh, two days that are happening around, I'm performing the August 11th and 12th, we're calling those low vision friendly days. And I've worked with the Vines Festival to develop these programs. So low vision friendly days are aimed for folks in the blind and partially sighted community, not exclusively, obviously, but they'll have extra sighted guides on hand. They are going to be providing transportation supports to your house and back home through rideshare and cab services for folks that register and need support mm. with transportation. They're going to provide food on that day for folks that come and spend a day at the park. Um, I think that's a pretty, and of course the tickets are free because they're outdoors. So I think that's a, 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 I think that's something to celebrate in terms of access. Personal chauffeur, personal chef, Amy, we're talking about that million dollar lifestyle right there. Right on, hey? <laughs> uh, so as you mentioned, the festival starts today, August the 3rd, runs until the 13th. Folks can head over to vinesartfestival.com to learn more, vinesartfestival.com to learn more, or if you didn't write that down fast enough, ami.ca slash now blog. Amy, while we're talking about folks enjoying themselves with some art mm -hmm. in the great outdoors, Bard on the Beach. What are some of the performances that folks can expect this year with Bard on the Beach? Bard on the Beach is back, and we're so happy to see it back again. This is also an outdoor festival, but it had been on hiatus because of the pandemic. It costs roughly like a million and a half to $2 million to set up these huge tents in the middle of Van Nuys Park. So basically, they, they build a theater outside, uh, but it's covered, right? So you're in like a wooded kind of Shakespearean-style vibe place with these tents that you watch um, Shakespearean shows over. But, but Bard is really well known for kind of mixing up the Shakespeare. I mean, one year I think they did uh, a show to the theme of Beatles music. Um, so they're always doing something a little bit different. Now, I haven't seen Midsummer's Night Dream yet because uh, it won't be until the end of August. On the 28th, we're going to do uh, the matinee performance, described matinee performance, and there will be uh, a social event. So Vocali hosts social events so the community can just like have a picnic together, mm -hmm. um, break some bread before we go see a Shakespeare performance. So... Um, I'm really, really excited that, that Bard on the Beach is back. You have a connection to a Midsummer Night's Dream. As I recall, you were part of a uh, online reading during the pandemic. What was that experience like? Yeah, you know, it was, uh, I want to say in the first handful of months, I think once we knew for sure that the two weeks that they told us we all needed to shut down was going to last longer than two weeks. Mm -hmm. And then once that kind of became clear to most folks, people started to, to scramble to figure out how to bring certainly arts back into, uh, uh, I guess, a digital space because, you know, the curtains were down, right? Um, and so the, the experience was great. It was me and a bunch of other blind performers, and we did an online reading of Midsummer's Night Dream, and we also um, brought our own sound effects. So uh, when Oberon or with fairies or somebody was walking in the forest, we had somebody taking paper in the background and crumpling it up and all that kind of stuff. Like, it was just fun. It was fun to be with community and to be performing at the same time. Coming back to Bart on the Beach, are there going to be some described shows? Is it going to be select shows or is it going to be the whole festival? Yeah, so for this one, it's select shows of, of a Midsummer's Night, Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, there's going to be two particular performances that are described of that. So one of them will be a matinee performance and one of them will be an evening performance. And we like to do that just so that folks have some choice. Not everybody wants a matinee. And the reason for the choice is honestly because of the way the sun sets. 
at Bard on the Beach, right? So you're either there in the matinee and, you know, around four o'clock can be the hottest time of the day. Mm. Um, or you're there and, and the sun is setting while you're watching the performance to the backdrop of the ocean. And so if you have partial sight, sometimes that can be a little bit challenging with partial sight. So, you know, we like to give folks some, some options in terms of um, what kinds of shows that they can attend to. And uh, the tickets are free. Hey, the low, low price of free 99. Uh, if people want to learn more, I'm going to give them the phone number here, but I'm yeah. also going to encourage them to uh, check out our blog after the show for more links, ami.ca slash now blog. But the phone number for questions in the box office is 604-739-0559, 604-739-0559. And that's open seven days a week, but the uh, hours are a little limited. Noon to six otherwise known as the dream work shift in my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> get that shift, box office. <laughs> uh, Amy, let's get to one more story here because you wanted to highlight an, an, a travel service called Accessible Go. So what resources are they offering to travelers with a disability? Yeah, so I thought Accessible Go was an interesting thing to highlight. Listen, I've been getting their newsletters for eons and have not really paid a lot of attention to them. Sadly, I will say that I get lots of newsletters from lots of places and there's just too many of them to read. Um, but as I'm thinking more and more about um, traveling again, um, as the world is thinking about that, and, and I think maybe no offense to you folks in Toronto, or, uh, but Pearson Airport's not going to be on my list of places <laughs> No, no, that's a good through. idea. That's a good idea. <laughs> But what I was thinking about was the, um, you know, like the NFB conferences, National Federation of the Blind and the ACB conferences and all of those things. Those big U.S. conferences where the blind community assembles have been happening this year. And so um, Accessible Go offers a lot of um, accessible travel suites. So um, they will they all you need to do is tell them what city it's mostly U.S. based. But if you're going to one of these conferences, that's great. Um, you, all you need to tell them what your access needs are, and they will make all of the reservations, find the hotel, communicate to the hotel the access needs, um, uh, prepare any discounts that you can get um, because they are working with hotel chains. Oh, nice. Make it more accessible. And I thought, it's really interesting. I bet you there aren't a lot of people that know this. Amy, did, did you say that it's it, it's mostly American-based? Are there any kind of big cities off the top of your brain that you want to fire off here? Oh, gosh, all of the big ones, you know, uh, Las Vegas, New York, Orlando, San Diego, Chicago, Hawaii, all of the big places that you would want to travel in the United States. Um, you can even apparently rent RVs um, oh, wow. if you want to, to uh, travel through in a luxury camper on wheels. Yeah. <laughs> I, th I think there's something to that kind of service, right? That you're leveraging partnerships and you're leveraging opportunity, yeah. but you're also letting somebody else kind of handle a lot of that third party calling because that can be a hassle, right? If you're going to do some traveling and you've got to call the airport and call the taxi company and call the limo uh -huh. company and call the hotel and call the restaurant and blah, 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 blah. Like at a certain point, planning your vacation ends up being exhausting. Well, and the only reason this comes together so nicely is because of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So yeah, there were yeah. hotel chains that um, have abided by these guidelines, that these suites have been vetted by folks with disabilities. Uh, because as we all know, uh, we talk about this in Canada all the time, but there's a difference between like building code and what is actually practical to oh, the yeah. end user. Oh, yeah. Right. And so they're talking about things like, you know, you can call in and you can say, this is the bed height I need. You know, this is the turning radius I need. And then they'll find a hotel in the area that you want to stay in. Um, and they're all... Um, all discounted between uh, 30 and 70% off that so you're like, you know, finding your own, 
find who wants to do the work of finding yeah. your own hotel? Yeah. Not not that I would besmirch the good hotel that I always stay at when I visit Ottawa these days. Uh, yeah. But they put me in a room, uh, which was really nice, by the way. But it was labeled as one of their accessible rooms that I was in over right. the weekend. Except that, yes, there were bars everywhere for people if they used the mobility device to sort of move right. themselves around. But, like, there was no turning radiuses for a wheelchair. So it's like, here's the accessible room that yeah. you can't actually access the, phys- the physical accessibility features if you use a mobility device. So I always find that funny, right? Well, I don't find it funny. Okay. Maybe I find it funny is the wrong word. I find it's it peculiar funny, right? yeah. when they yeah. slap on sort of the sign and say, ah, look at our accessible room. We have bars everywhere. It's like, yeah, and- but like, people can't get to them. And sometimes, oftentimes, the beds are quite high in those suites because mm-hmm. they don't they don't think about transferring from you know a, a device into a into a bed. Um, so there's lots of things. Let, 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 let somebody else do that for you. Yeah, let somebody else do that work. Amy, thank you for this. You're welcome, Dave. That's Amy Amanti, community reporter in Vancouver, BC. Remember, you can always find out more about those stories on the blog ami.ca/slash now blog. After the break, it's the regional news update with Mike Ross. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Wednesday, August the 3rd, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the Manchester City Football Club, or soccer team, depending on how you like to say it, has designed a new smart scarf to gauge how their fans are reacting during the game. Mike Agarbo of the App Show will share the details on that one. And we catch up with Jenny Bovard, who will share some tips on how to plan a trip with good food in mind as she reflects on her experiences with food and culture in Montreal. No shortage of food and or culture in Montreal. Let's bring in Mike Ross. He's got the regional news updates. Car Dealers Association of BC says the province's decision to revise rebates for electric vehicles will make zero emission vehicles more affordable for lower income people. Blair Qualey says the changes are positive steps and his association is anticipating more. The Ministry of Energy, Mines and Low Carbon Innovation says the maximum provincial rebate for battery electric fuel electric and our fuel cell electric and long-range plug-in hybrid electric vehicles climbs from $3,000 to $4,000. It says the maximum rebate for lower-range plug-in hybrid electric vehicles increases to $2,000 from the previous high of $1,500. To the prairies, the father of a missing Saskatchewan boy says he last saw his son on the day he and his mother were last seen. Andrew Jensen told CKOM Radio he spent the day with 7-year-old Vincent Jensen on July 22nd and then dropped him off with the boy's mother, Don Walker. A truck and personal belongings of the 48-year-old mother from Okanese First Nation have been found at Chief Whitecap Park near the South Saskatchewan River, just south of Saskatoon. Andrew Jensen says he and Walker were partners for four years ago and says he's been in shock since the disappearance of the mother and son. Regina will debut its own brand of mustard today as the Queen City X kicks off. Regina Exhibition President Tim Reed says Saskatchewan grows 80% of Canada's mustard seed and they want Regina to be the country's mustard capital. The Queen City Mustard is a collaboration between the Saskatchewan Food Industry Development Centre and Ag in the Classroom and will be for sale at the X 
All proceeds will support the Regina Food Bank. I didn't know that that Saskatchewan was the leading mustard producer in Canada. No, I I knew canola. I mean, that's, I think, a a pretty Mm well-known fact Mm -hmm. through the West, but mustard was a bit of a surprise. And I don't know, Dave, I'm a bit of a mustard guy. And (laughs) it's like, okay, now anybody in Regina, uh, think of your boy here. I, I want some mustard. I know it wasn't in the copy, but I'm curious what kind of mustard it is because I'm also someone who enjoys a good mustard from both the yellow mustard to the honey mustard to the Dijon family, the Dijonese family. I love a good, good grainy mustard. Yeah, I'm not crazy about the it's green. Got a little bit of oh, it's got a little bit of pop. You throw that on a on a piece of rye bread with uh, some smoked meat. Oh, okay. Baby. Well, now we're now we're playing the flavor game, and I'm all about that. Sorry, Mike, I interrupted you. You, you, no, we, no, that's you can fine. go back to sharing the news with people. I'm just thinking of that when I was at Dunn's last week oh. in Montreal. Oh. I could have had some of that grainy mustard on there. Oh boy, you know not that's good. Not, not that they sponsor the show, but I will say this: as far as chain smoked meat goes, Duns in Montreal, particularly the Metcalf location, goodness gracious, that's a good sandwich. We went to uh, the one or one of the ones in Saint Eustache. Oh, and between the sandwich and the home cut fries, I mean, it's it's hard to beat they know what they really doing. is hard to beat. they know what yeah. they're doing you know duns say yeah, sponsor do. the show i will eat a smoked meat bring sandwich on. on air every day bring it on duns and if not saint hubert is another good one oh, uh you know man. if they want to they can send me a too. send me a big uh, crate of their uh, delicious <laughs> delicious shooter sized uh, uh, uh brown sauce Mm-mm. not a I national mean. brand though swiss chalet owns them now no so and i'm working on that okay. i'm working on that <laughs> so am i i've told i've told them now and, and they told me on twitter they liked my idea so mm, okay we'll we need we to combine do. our efforts on this because i'm doing more of a grassroots campaign i love it Let's go to Ontario. Ontario's health minister says the province is trying to get more internationally trained nurses working faster to ease hospital staffing shortages. Sylvia Jones says the health ministry and hospitals are doing everything they can to get shifts covered so emergency rooms do not have to close temporarily. Numerous hospitals across the province have had to briefly close or reduce the number of hospital beds in emergency departments over the past few months. Jones says they're looking to expedite a backlog of internationally trained nurses awaiting certification. A union representing Ontario education workers has asked the province for annual wage increases of 11.7%. The Canadian Union of Public Employees represents 55,000 workers, including early childhood educators, school administration workers, bus drivers and custodians. The union says it wants a pay raise of $3.75 per hour. The union argues that workers' wages have been restricted over the last decade and notes inflation is expected to rise further. A spokeswoman for Education Minister Stephen Lecce did not comment on CUPE's proposed wage increase, but says the government is intent on reaching a deal that ensures students are in class when school is scheduled to start, with extracurriculars included. And to the Atlantic region. Forestry officials have asked cabin owners in parts of central Newfoundland to get away from ongoing forest fires along the Bay Despair Highway and around Paradise Lake. Officials once again closed the highway yesterday because of high winds, flare-ups and smoke, and they asked cabin owners to get out carefully. The fires have been prompting intermittent road closures for over a week. The Bay Despair Highway is the only connection between communities along Newfoundland's Conagra Peninsula and the rest of the island. 
And those are your top regional headlines going coast to coast across the country. So, Mike, in the game of musical chairs that we have playing around this show, we have uh, Paula Flalo working in the video control room today. And he says that we are wrong, wrong, wrong in regards to our food takes. Now, I'm not sure whether it was our St. Hubert take or whether it was our commercialized smoked meat take. Listen, Paul. I know you're a man of good taste. I know you're a noted Montrealer. But the fact is the Cotes Luke Barbecue and Chalet Barbecue and Smoked Meat Pizza and Chinois will not be sponsoring the show. So I will give them all the praise in the world. But the fact is, if we're trying to get the, you know, the old Monopoly Man money bag, we got to talk about these national brands. And if I can say in fairness, St. Hubert may not be completely national. But they are in three provinces. Mm-hmm. So they have 140-some restaurants in Quebec seven in Ontario, and four in New Brunswick. So the the footprint has expanded over the years. <laughs> now we just need it going a little bit more west, and we need it down in southern Ontario. We need it back down in southern Ontario. There was one here 22 years ago, and then it left. Okay, so he was specifically mad about our uh, commercialized smoked meat take. Oh, okay. okay. So, so again, you so know, he's a Schwartz's guy. That's what that means. I, you know what? He's told me before which one he is. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's Schwartz's, but uh, like I said, Chinois and smoked meat. Pete makes a nice uh, makes a nice sandwich too. But the fact is, if you're wandering down Metcalf in St. Catherine at uh, three in the morning. Duns is there for you with a nice sandwich and a good piece of cheesecake. Speaking of musical yep. chairs, Mike, don't go anywhere because you're also here for the sports chats. So a bit of sad news from the baseball world yesterday. Hall of Fame baseball broadcaster Vin Scully passed away at the age of 94. Charlie Steiner announced Scully's passing during the L.A. Dodgers matchup Tuesday against the Giants. Here is the sound of Steiner paying tribute to Scully. And for those of us that were touched by him, listened to him, and learn from him. This is a uh, a deep loss. We also have sound here from Michael Kay, who's the play-by-play voice for the New York Yankees. He says Scully had a rare talent. I think he was such an incredible storyteller, and he was so lyrical, and his voice was almost poetic, that you didn't feel as if you were listening to a baseball broadcast you were sitting down with a really close friend and he was telling you these incredible stories about what was going on in front of you. Mike, you and I are both deeply framed by the soundtrack of the summer that is baseball play-by-play. What's your reaction to the passing of Vince Scully? I think it's very sad and baseball has lost uh, a legend. Uh, broadcasting's lost a legend. There are... There are voices that everyone, whether it be music, whether it be uh, uh, poetry, acting, or sports broadcasting, there are voices that we attach to what is the soundtrack of our lives. And for me, when I think of baseball, and I think of baseball, first and foremost in my mind is Dave Van Horn, because I grew Mm -hmm. up listening to Expos Mm -hmm. games. Um, And and then you go to where um, other familiar names come in and, and Vince Scully 67 years as a broadcaster with the Dodgers from their days in Brooklyn uh, all the way to uh, these their days in Los Angeles um, decade upon decade upon decade of broadcasting and, and for me as a baseball fan uh, one of the things that I made sure I had access to when I first got satellite radio was 
the 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 baseball play by play channels mm. because there's nothing I love more than flipping on a Dodgers game late at night and listening to Vin Scully broadcast a ball game. Uh, and the West Coast, I mean, let's face it, they've they've been pretty blessed with some some great voices. I mean, John Miller doing the Giants games in San Francisco to this day, uh, Vin Scully in L.A. I mean, those are a couple of guys that I. You could have them read the menu at a restaurant yeah. and you'd find it entertaining and, and just soothing. And it really is, uh, as I posted on social media earlier today, to me, that's that's the sound of summer. Yeah. Longevity longevity is a big part of it, but the quality of the work was certainly yep. there, even late in his career. Even the man worked into his late 80s. He was almost 90 when he retired. It is remarkable the work that Vince Kelly could do, oftentimes in a one-man booth as well. Yes. He was someone who could just absolutely take you through the game by talking to you. He was a broadcasting legend and someone whose impact will continue to ripple through the industry for decades, maybe even centuries to come. It's uh, certainly a sad loss although i always say when somebody passes away at 94 that that can be a celebration that's less less of a tragedy and more of a celebration and there's so much celebration of vince scully's life going on today and uh just remarkable and certainly if anybody wants to head over to youtube and just punch in vince scully and you'll get some mm. of the most iconic calls the man's ever done and you can see just how great he was Mike, while we're in the world of baseball, I just want to make a quick comment about the San Diego Padres, who uh, are pushing the chips all in for a championship run this year. Yesterday, making the big trade to acquire a power hitter, Juan Soto, from the Washington Nationals to pair him along with uh, Manny Machado, who's having a great year for them, and uh, the soon-to-return Fernando Tatis. Mike, the San Diego Padres, it's not just the Juan Soto trade yesterday for one of the premier young sluggers in the league. They traded for Brandon Drury last week ahead of the baseball trade deadline. They acquired pitcher Sean Manoa from the Oakland Athletics. This team is pushing all the chips in, and there's always a risk to that, Mike, but I love it when a sports team says, you know what? Let's go for it. Let's do it. The window's open. Here you go. Here's our ammunition. Let's play. Yeah, I'm with you. And and I mean, to put a hockey spin on it, a few years ago, that's what I was saying about the Nashville Predators and, and, and using a baseball euphemism in, in describing it that David Poyle at that time, the GM of the pod, of the, uh, uh, the, the Predators, Predators yep. rather, yep. was swinging for the fences and said, it's time to go for it. And and I love it too. And the uh, the fellow GMs around baseball are speaking of the Padres GM and saying, this guy has no fear, like, right? Like he sees that this is his time. This is his team's time. We're putting all the chips in and we're going for it. And I get a feeling that the Padres are now where the Houston Astros were maybe six years ago or so, maybe a little bit more than that, where... You know, they've, they've been bad for a while. They've built up their resources. They've built up their mm -hmm. uh, their, their farm system. And here's an interesting thing. Is the prospects that they gave up yesterday, you know, you put a lot of money into signing, uh, you know, draft picks, signing bonuses and development money, things like that. They had spent $20 million in signing bonuses wow. on the players wow. that they traded away yesterday. So they're really, it's not just about what they're spending to bring these players in. It's what they've already spent in the players that they were sending out. That was really impressive yeah. yesterday. There can be consequences to doing this, but the fact is Manny Machado is still in his early thirties. Fernando Tatis is under 25. Juan Soto is 23. This is a team that's pushing the chips in now and saying, Hey, 
we could have a big three here for the next six, seven years, yes. six, seven, eight yeah. years while they're doing it. So it's a really nice piece of business here by the San Diego Padres. And Mike, of course, because we're talking about baseball, people will yell at me if I don't bring up the Blue Jays. Made a couple <laughs> nice moves on the fringes yesterday, a couple extra arms to help in the bullpen, and uh, bringing in a Met Whit Merrifield from the uh, Kansas City Royals. That's a good speedy player who can play some good defense. That's a couple nice pickups by the Jays, but certainly not quite the uh, pushing the chips all in like the San Diego Padres. No. No, it wasn't. And nothing, you know, earth shattering, but also they can't, people can't say that they didn't do any fine tuning. What I found interesting yesterday, Dave, was the most traded man in baseball history was traded again. (laughs) Any idea who that is? No, who was it? Jesse Chavez. He's 38 years old and was traded for a 10th time in his, I believe, 15 year major league career. Traded in 2006, traded twice in 2009. 2010, 2012, 2015, 2016, 2018, and twice (laughs) in 2022. Wow. So how about that? Jesse Chavez, who, by the way, did play for the Blue Jays at one point. I've interviewed Jesse Chavez when I was down at spring training a couple of years ago. I was asking all the players how they take their pizza. Jesse Chavez says, doesn't really matter what toppings I put, but I dip it in ketchup. Okay. A little fun fact about Jesse Chavez. Probably. Probably not popular in the clubhouse, so <laughs> out he goes. <laughs> I bet you I bet you Paula Flala doesn't like that food take either. Mike, thank you for this. Okay, Dave. That's Mike Ross. <laughs> he was helping us out by sitting at the AMI sports desk, and he'll be there the rest of the week filling in for Jeff while Jeff's on a well-deserved vacation. Grace Scofield is back from vacation and is here with the National Weather Update. Thanks, Dave. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where there's some showers ending this afternoon. Then it's mainly cloudy, with a risk of a thunder shower this morning and early this afternoon, with a high of 21. In Charlottetown, it's cloudy, with a 30% chance of drizzle early this morning, becoming a mix of sun and cloud later this morning, with a high of 25. In St. John, it's a mix of sun and cloud today, with a 30% chance of drizzle this morning and a high of 28 degrees. Over in Quebec City, it's sunny today with a high of 24 degrees. In Toronto, a mix of sun and cloud with a 30% chance of showers late this afternoon with a risk of a thunderstorm and a high of 31 degrees. In Sault Ste. Marie, it's cloudy with a 40% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm with a high of 23 degrees. In Brandon, Manitoba, a mix of sun and cloud with a high of 23 degrees. In Regina, it's clearing up this morning, and the high is 24 degrees today. Over in Lethbridge, Alberta, it's mainly sunny, with a high of 28 degrees. In Red Deer, it's mainly cloudy, with 30% chance of showers early this morning and late this afternoon, with a risk of a thunderstorm late this afternoon as well, and a high of 22 degrees. Up in Whitehorse, it's mainly cloudy with a 30% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon with a high of 20 degrees. In Kelowna, BC, it's mainly cloudy with a high of 28 degrees. And in Vancouver, BC, it's cloudy today with some showers beating this afternoon and a high of 17 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Grace. Coming up next, the Manchester City Football Clubber. 
soccer team, if you will, has developed a new smart scarf to gauge their fan reactions during the game. Mike Agarbo of The App Show will fill you in with those details. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. For the second time today, we are going to be talking tech, this time with Mike Agarbo, who's the host of The App Show, which you can find Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. And there's a rumor that Mike is joining us from Toronto today. Is that correct, Mike? Yeah, I'm in town for uh, a week. A big Samsung event. Uh, they're going to be announcing some new phones. Oh, Mike Agarbo getting the front row seat to the Samsung event in Toronto. Look at you moving and shaking, rubbing elbows. <laughs> we'll see. Okay. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see how many elbows can be rubbed. Uh, Mike, let's talk about the world of AI. Yesterday on the show, we were talking with Marco Pasqua about the DALL-E 2, an image generator by OpenAI. Mike, you wanted to dive a little bit deeper for your insight onto the subject. So at the moment, AI image-generated art is uh, looked at as something of a novelty, but there's more to it. What are some of the practical applications for this new technology? It's really amazing. I've been uh, messing around with one called midjourney.ai. It's available through uh, the Discord uh, uh, app, and you can make some really amazing art. It's actually mind-blowing, uh, basically just typing in some keywords like dog, space battle, whatever, and the computer will generate uh, you know, this amazing uh, piece of uh, piece of work. Uh, you know, as far as a practical application, uh, you know, I can see commercial applications for this. You know, businesses wanting to uh, generate uh, art for proposals uh, or you know the wall. Uh, you know, I guess the sky's the limit with this. But you know, if you haven't had a chance to check this out yet, it it will blow your mind at how good it really is. Speaking of the sky being the limit, those are some practical applications. Where do you think the overall potential is here? Well, uh, God, uh, right now we're just talking photographs, but, uh, you know, the, uh, the people behind midjourney.ai say within two years, uh, they'll be able to, uh, have, uh, artificial intelligence that'll be able to do 30 frames a second, like video, actually oh create the video. And then, you know, they're, you know, postulating 10 years from now, you know, your, your Xbox will come with, uh, an AI chip built into it. That'll be so powerful that it'll just create games on the fly that'll be like dreams so Whoa. you know i don't even think we can fully fathom what's happening here yet uh you know but if you do get a chance to try you know some of this uh this stuff out uh you'll start getting an idea of how how amazing uh the future will be when it comes to uh creation and you know just having a tool like this like the art is better than i will ever be able to do in my life like <laughs> you can have cartoon art you can have you know photorealistic landscapes you can have work in the style of van gogh it, it really is amazing it doesn't take much to outperform me on the art front. I almost failed kindergarten <laughs> art because I couldn't cut straight. So, you know, that's just how I be. Uh, Mike. I, I'm using a brown crayon the whole time. So. <laughs> yeah. Mike, of course we live in a polarized world, so no news story or technology story can come without criticisms. What are some of the criticisms of this tech? Uh, I guess some people are saying it's going to take away the human element uh, because – Computers will just get so good at doing art. Why do we need humans to do it anymore? So uh, I don't know. You know, 
I, I think we still need humans uh, to uh, uh, kind of curate this stuff. Um, and they still will have artists that do have the human touch, I, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what will happen, what direction this will go in. Like if, if you can have artificial intelligence basically make all the artwork you, you need, like honestly, within like 30 seconds. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's... I don't know where the future will go with this. Yeah, uh, Mike, what's the landscape in terms of the availability to this, to the average consumer? Uh, Midjourney.ai, it's uh, available now. Uh, the first 25 images you generate are free. After that, uh, it's a paid monthly subscription, anywhere from 10 to $30 a month. I know so many friends right now, they have no practical application for it, but they're subscribing because it is just so amazing and, and awesome. Mm, interesting. Well, Mike, let's go from the world of artificial intelligence and art to the world of sports and technology. English soccer club or football club Manchester City wants to know what their fans are feeling at the games beyond just sort of singing songs. So they've developed a new smart scarf to gauge fan emotions. So how does this pilot project work? How is this scarf measuring my emotions as I'm yelling at Mohamed Salah? Yeah, I don't know if you really needed a scarf to tell you what uh, the <laughs> we're feeling in, in the UK. I mean, you can just look at them and get a pretty good I- idea, but it's got almost like a little Fitbit built into the uh, the back of it. So when uh, the person has it wrapped around them, it's measuring everything from their, their heart rate. Uh, and what they say is their emotional arousal. Again, I don't know if you need a scarf to figure that, that out. But um, I, I guess uh, the club is just trying to get a sense of, you know, how the fans are responding to the game as the game is uh, happening. And then obviously using that information for nefarious purposes. Now, of course, people would have been listening there and said, Dave, why were you talking about a Liverpool player, Mohamed Salah? I'm putting myself in the Manchester City point of view that I'd be yelling at <laughs> Mo Salah. Of course, they would be cheering for Kevin De Bruyne, their star midfielder. But again, not to get too deep into an English Premier League soccer preview, which actually starts this weekend. So that's kind of exciting. So, Mike, you mentioned nefarious. And I don't know if uh, we want to get the lawyers in on this one, but what are they expecting to do with some of this data? I don't know. I guess, you know, they're trying to improve the overall entertainment uh, uh, aspect of, of the game. Again, I, I don't know what they would improve uh, upon uh, there, but, you know, they're testing it right now. I think they tested it on six fans. They're going to actually be rolling it out to more uh, folks. So uh, we'll just have to see where that, uh, that all goes. Is there any precedent for this? Have other sports organizations tried to put smart wearables on their fans? I don't know about fans. I know they've put them on players mm-hmm. uh, you know, as you're... Uh, their overall health and, and, and fitness uh, as they're playing the game. Uh, but I'm not aware of any fans that they've used as guinea pigs yet <laughs> for this kind of stuff. So <laughs> we'll, we'll just have to wait and, and see. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a neat idea. But as you say, oftentimes when it comes to sporting events, uh, oftentimes the emotions are worn on the sleeve, not around the neck. So uh, right. I, think, I think we'd be pretty clear about uh, who the fans like and who the fans don't like. Uh, but hey, listen, try, try something new. And uh, if it means they can sell the, the team supporter scarf for the extra $100, then uh, more money in Man U's pocket. Because, you know, they need more money, Man U. they got to spend oh. these $100 million euro transfer fees to bring in the, the big players and buy their championships like a baseball team. 
Okay, I'll stop. I'll stop. Go Liverpool. Go Reds. Uh, Mike, let's uh, jump into one more issue and bring it a little closer to home with the Arrive Can app. According to Global News, the federal government has admitted some issues are popping up with the Arrive Can app, including quarantine notifications for travelers uh, telling them that they that they had to potentially be quarantined after crossing into Canada. So we, do we know why this accidental alert was sent out? I don't know why it was. Uh, obviously, there was a glitch in the system. It affected about 3% of, of users and uh, just on iPhone users. So if you had an Android phone, it, it didn't affect you. Uh, smart. But essentially, yeah, you know, you fill out the, the app and then it uh, told you, uh, even though you didn't have to, that you got a quarantine. So, I mean, this is kind of a long, uh, you know, on a long list of things uh, with this particular app. Uh, I don't think everyone loves this uh, app uh, and they're expanding upon it as well. It came out you know, basically to help uh, manage uh, COVID, uh, but um, now they're going to be incorporating other border screening uh, tools and questions uh, into it uh, going going forward. Uh, it, it's, I think, gumming up the system in uh, a lot of uh, the busier places. I think in Windsor, for example, the border uh, people there are saying, you know, 40% of the people don't know how to use it properly and they're having to help them so that obviously takes a lot of time and, and makes the lineups longer. Yeah, some of the criticisms of the Arrive Can app certainly are lodged in political belief, but there are some definite technological issues that exist with this. What are some of the ones that are common ones that are popping up? <laughs> People just don't know how to use it. Yeah, um, yeah fair. There's, there's a lot of stuff. Well, it's not a lot of stuff, but, you know, if you're not tech savvy, you know, you got to load this app in, then you got to put all your passport information in. So some people just don't want to go through all of that. You know, I was in Europe uh, a little while back and, you know, at the airport, uh, you know, before you could actually go through the gates, you had to show that you had filled this, this app out. And it, there was just chaos, you know, people were crying and the lineups were crazy. So, uh, you know, I don't think the vast majority of people are, are used to this, this app. I mean, once you get it loaded and get the info in there, it's not that difficult to use, but you know, I think of my parents, for example, they would never know how to use this in a million years. Yeah. So they would be people coming up the border. It's a barrier to entry for sure. As folks yeah. are trying to get familiar with the technology. I will say this, Mike, we've reached the point where it's a little bit preposterous that I'm still filling out that thing with a pencil and pen that they're handing me on the airplane oh. when I'm crossing oh. the border. So like if we can digitize this a little bit, that would be great. Really appreciated. But let's make sure the app is accessible and functional and properly, properly functioning. Uh, exactly. And, you know, one pro tip for the uh, listeners out there, um, you know, if you've got elderly parents uh, that uh, are crossing a border, you can actually include them in your app as well. So get all their passport information and, and fill it up for them before they, they go across. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely you know, something to be said about being a team leader on that front. Hey, Mike, listen, enjoy your week in Toronto. Hope uh, hope it's uh, safe travels all around and that Pearson doesn't give you too much trouble. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. That's Mike Agarbo. He's one of the hosts of The App Show. And he, you, well, you can find that show Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. And you can find Mike on Twitter at Mike Agarbo. Coming up next, we'll catch up with Jenny Bovard. She's going to reflect on a trip she just took to Montreal, taking in some food and culture. And she'll offer up some tips on how to plan an effective foodie vacation. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. So, you are planning a trip. It could be around the world. It could be around the block. What are you considering before you leave? Beyond, of course, how am I getting to the train station, the airport? Who's schlepping me around and where am I going? What am I going to eat? You need fuel to enjoy your vacation. And some vacation spots have better food than others. But nonetheless, there's always a little bit of digging you can do to plan and maximize your eating. Food and drink columnist Jenny Bovard is here to help you make those plans. And Jenny, of course, is in Halifax. Hey, good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Dave. How's it going? I'm well. So you are in Halifax, but you were also recently in Montreal. What brought you to my old hometown? The catalyst for the whole trip was the Just for Laughs Festival. I had purchased some tickets back at Christmas time as a gift for my husband. And it was just a fine excuse to get out of the Maritimes for the first time in two and a half years. (laughs) Well, I hope the trip went well. And outside of getting some good laughs in, you managed to explore some food and culture in the city. And Montreal definitely has... um, (laughs) Uh, an abundance of both of those. But uh, food has always been at the top of your priority list for trip planning. How does that come about? Well, honestly, anywhere I travel, I tend to make a bit of a plan to eat my way through that place. Um, Whether it's experiencing the local cuisine or like just visiting the local supermarket, those are those are destinations for me when when I travel. And honestly, this time around, I had I had recently dove into Anthony Bourdain's most recent book. I think it's called World Travel, uh, if I'm not mistaken. It's kind of escaping me. The brain's still on vacation. I, I feel you, Jenny. I feel you deeply. So, but, you know, the places in this book were a little beyond, they weren't really my go-to sort of local eateries. They were a little more high-end than than what I was looking okay, for, okay. perhaps. Right. So <laughs> honestly, my stuff, uh, I, I did some research online, went to the old Instagram and just looked at what was appealing and what's, what sounded appealing to me in the description. When you're planning the itinerary, how much are you taking distance and geography into, into effect? Life is a constant logistical plan when you don't drive. So, and you know, for anyone nowadays, I've heard it's really difficult to get a rented vehicle these days. So uh, location is incredibly important. Um, We had, we stayed at a place that is really central where we were able to walk nearly everywhere. We did Uber a few places, did make a couple of itinerary changes based on being able to get that refreshing beverage a little bit quicker because it was very hot. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a huge thing. It's a huge thing. And honestly, things are pretty well mapped out for me before I even get there. Here's the hotel. Here are the places I want to go. How many Ubers am I going to have to take, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Will you pick your hotel even based on what you want to eat? I know some friends of mine who will plan their entire vacation on getting the reservation at a fancy restaurant first and then building from there. Whereas I'm a little bit the opposite. I will find a hotel in a part of town that I like. And then when I get there, I pump into the old Google Maps and hit restaurants and see what's around. I'm a bit more of a planner than than that. I, I can't, I, I would definitely, if there was a place I wanted to go, um, I would look for hotels in the area. But in this case, I booked my hotel well over six months in advance and it was slim pickings. So I went okay. with a hotel that I knew. <laughs> 
um, that was very centrally located in Montreal. It's yeah. called Hotel Espresso. And I've been there many times. It's very walkable. It, the hotel itself is not you know, Instagram worthy. It's very minimalistic. <laughs> you get what you need. They serve espresso in the lobby 24 well, seven and it's so. good espresso. Right. So, so that was a big draw. And, and yes, I would do that, but not, I had didn't this time. So let's talk about some of the meals that you enjoyed there, because as I mentioned off the top, Montreal is certainly renowned for good eats. So what did you eat and did it meet your expectations? 100% exceeded my expectations. Dave, I had a few things on my list I didn't get to. My first stop I was hoping would be Dieu du Ciel, which is a brewery I absolutely adore. But it was a bit further than I wanted to go uh, after landing to get my first craft beer. So we ended up at Brewtopia, which is a brew pub. Um, you can walk there pretty much from yeah, anywhere yeah. downtown. On Crescent Below St. Catherine, yes, I have spent sir. some time at Brewtopia. Quite the atmosphere, quite the lovely beer selection. Everything's got a lovely flavor. Uh, there was an IPA called Ipianana. Uh, I don't know how it's actually pronounced, but it was very cute name. And I'm not a big IPA fan, but is it sold me. It tasted uh, very much like anana, very much like pineapple, much like all the other beers. Exactly the flavor that they promised. So that was an amazing first stop in lieu of Dieu du Ciel. I'll be back for Dieu du Ciel though. <laughs> what about the actual eats? The food. Next stop was Restaurant Siam. And this is also right downtown. It is a Thai place serving really all your Thai staples, but everything was just so beautifully executed. We had the best fresh fresh spring rolls I've ever had in my life and the peanut sauce just to die for. I don't know what the other sauce was. There's another sauce there. I didn't even bother with it. It was all about the peanut sauce. Um, my lovely husband was there with me. I think he's in a picture we're showing right now, showing off those spring rolls. He had the pad soy and he said it was the best pad soy he'd ever had. That's one of his go-tos. I had the poulet uh, croustillant. Uh, so I had the crispy chicken, which was so perfectly sweet and spicy. I can taste it right now. It was just so good. Um, we also were a little peckish after the comedy show. So we we're like, it's a little late and we don't know what's going to be open. Most of the kitchens were closed that we had walked by. So we said, you know what? An Irish pub is going to have at least a deep fryer going. So we immediately began the hunt for an Irish pub. It was amazing in the distance. I saw some patio lights, what I believe to be patio lights. My husband confirmed, and we went in that direction. <laughs> and we found uh, McGibbons, which uh, I, I've I've learned after visiting is a bit of a staple in the area. It's I a big university bar. I also bar. spent a chunk of my 20s at McGibbons, yes. Yeah, and, you know, they had just what you wanted late night, a uh, couple, couple beers and some nachos. The nachos were just exactly what you needed, some spicy salsa, and live music on the side wasn't too bad at all. It wasn't Irish sounding music though, which was a no, little no. disappointing. They it was do... all classic rock. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's the way McKibben's rules. Uh, I certainly never went to ladies' night on Wednesdays when it was twenty dollars for dudes to get in and all you can oh, drink and five dollars for ladies. They can't do that promotion anymore because there were too many brawls in the streets. Not that I was involved in any of those. I would never. Uh, Jenny, any unplanned surprises or something that you ate along the way that uh, ended up being uh, not necessarily in the itinerary, but still tasted real yum? 
So the last night we were there, we were planning on doing something a little more fancy. We had been to a restaurant called Modavi before. Modavi is one of Montreal's, I think, oldest establishments. And I had a beautiful lamb there last time we were in Montreal, my first time having lamb. But it was a little, again, off the beaten path. And we were like, let's find something a little more convenient. It was really hot. Um, and so my husband wanted his smoked meat fix his 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 he and he got it um and and we we didn't wait in line at schwartz's which would be a lot of people's sort of mm-hmm. thought when they think of mm-hmm. montreal smoked meat but we went with ruben's deli and steakhouse um we looked it up online like you said from the hotel what's in the area and it was just a, a lovely little surprise i didn't really know about it until we stumbled upon it I tried the smoked meat. I'm not a smoked meat fan, but it melted in my mouth in a way nothing has ever melted in my mouth before. And mm-hmm. if I was a meat eater, if I was a beef eater, I would eat it. Um, so he he had that. I had the lovely charbroiled chicken on a brioche, but the star of the night at Rubens, they've been around since like 76 or 74, I think. And it's this secret family recipe passed on for years for the smoked meat but for me the the real star was the very tall banana fosters cheesecake that we had for dessert right and i they have a lovely selection of cheesecake and i sometimes i drink things other than beer um (laughs) and they have really nice cocktails there i had a spicy cocktail well it wasn't super spicy but it had jalapenos in it Mm -hmm. um so go for the um go for the picante if you can if you go there jenny you know how to live there's no doubt about that give me a quick uh, review of how the hospitality and restaurant sector actually treated you in montreal because sometimes it has the reputation of being a little bit snooty I didn't have that experience. Um, I will say in some instances, there is um, a bit of hesitation. If you walk into a place and you're speaking English, they're like, do I have to serve you in English? They will sometimes come right out and ask. And I will say there was a bit of an air of pleasantly surprised when we would switch to French because my husband and I are both bilingual. Uh, But I will say everywhere I went, all the food establishments, all the coffee roasters, even the uh, Marché uh, Jean Talon, the open air market, every... Yeah, I just went to Ogle there mostly. Uh, We did get a lovely espresso drink there and made a few more food stops that we need way more time for this today. But, um, you know, everyone was really... There was an air of... Just excellence I was the word I would say. Everyone was striving to just be as excellent as they could. And maybe that's because us tourists are just coming back and they really need to make that impression. Mm-hmm. And I, it's not been my experience. I've not had a bad food or hospitality experience. Uh, if you if you give out the dish out the kindness and the you know willingness to to speak in French if you can, that's great. But everyone's bilingual for the most part, if not more so, more more languages. Jenny, so. we could probably dedicate an entire segment to farmer's markets or markets mm-hmm. in general. Um, Let's Jean- do that. Yeah, we should do that. Jean Talon's a great one. I always liked Atwater Market personally in Montreal because it was a little bit easier for me to get to and a little uh. less overwhelming than Jean Talon because Jean Talon is uh, quite the scene. But yeah, I love me a good market. So let, let, let's put a pin in that one for a future segment. I think that's a great idea because I love me a good farmer's market. Jenny? We're almost out of time here, but I need to know, if I opened up your Expedia.ca account right now, what's next on the travel travel and food bucket list? 
Oh my goodness. It's so difficult. I just want to go to back, go back to Montreal and <laughs> do all the things I didn't get to do. But I think I really want to go, I want to go back to Europe really soon uh, or, or some of the, the Scandinavian countries and eat my way through there. Um, I, I, I yearn for something new. So something new, something mm -hmm. out of Canada, most likely. Jenny, I've got to thank you because before I left for a bachelor party in Halifax, you sent me a really nice email with some recommendations. I don't think we went to any of your places because we just started chasing live music and tequila. <laughs> okay, I can get behind that. <laughs> yeah. But now you have a list for next time when you're not chasing live music and tequila. So I am going to come back, Jenny. Your city, Halifax, Nova Scotia, treated us so, so well. I'd been once before for a wedding and I always thought, oh, it was the wedding that made the trip great. And then I went on this trip and I thought, oh, you know, it was the bachelor party that made this trip great. Incorrect. I think your city has to be an undiscovered, underrated jewel in this country. Folks know how much I love Vancouver. Folks know how much I like Winnipeg. But Halifax, Nova Scotia is two for two so far. And Jenny, I've got to come back because I had such a great time. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Even if you didn't go to any of my recommended spots, <laughs> I always say Halifax has the vibe of, of the East Coast. Everyone's friendly and willing to smile and chat and give you directions. Uh, but we have the amenities. We have the stuff of a bigger yeah, city. Yeah. Which is that that's that's it for me. Uh, absolutely. For me. Went to the Halifax Wanderers soccer game as well and had a really nice time at the soccer game. Uh, Semi-pro through and through, but they don't charge semi-pro prices for the cocktails. <laughs> Fair enough, right? You have to be willing to pay for a good cocktail. Now, before I forget, I will say having a sighted guide in Montreal was was uh, very beneficial for me. You mentioned the market. That was one area where having a sighted guide handy uh, was very, very helpful. But also there's construction everywhere, oh, yeah. all the time, every season. So just be warned of that. And if you can have someone sighted handy, I wouldn't normally say that. I'm fiercely independent. I would love to travel alone. But it was very helpful to have that. A trip to Montreal necessitates a game of cones. There's no doubt about it. Jenny, thank you for this. Oh, cheers. I could go on and on. I know we could, but we're going to run out of time. Jenny All Bovard right. is a food and drink columnist for us, and she's based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Coming up after the break, we'll find out what's coming up on Kelly and Company and catch up with Grace Scofield and Nisreen Abdel-Majid. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's look ahead to this afternoon when Kelly and company hits the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Ramya Emlupin is the co-host of that show and joins us now for a preview. Hey, good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. So, Ramya, what's coming up on the show later today? All right. Well, we are talking to Margaret Weldon. She's actually coming on a couple of times, filling in for Bill Shackleton and Jeff Ryman. So uh, we're calling it the Margaret Weldon Show. But she's coming <laughs> on in the know 
to offer us tips on how we can save energy while making our homes more comfortable year round. So she's telling us to start thinking about the winter from now. Who knows how much uh, how many of us will listen, but it, it is some good tips ahead of us. Uh, the Regina Folk Festival will be piloting an accessibility project using a hearing loop. So Jim Crisco has the details on that project. And the International Association of Assistance Dog Partners is announcing a new website, and Devin Wilkins is going to give us the details. Plus, she has a trivia, uh, some trivia questions lined up for us as well. Right on. Hey, Ramya, we're a little tight for time today, so I can't make any chitter-chatter with you, but I'll hit you up tomorrow. Sounds good, Dave. That's Ramya Emwithin, the co-host of Kelly and Company, coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Grace Scofield's coming your way right now with an entertainment report. Grace, what's going on in the world of glitz and glamour? So, interestingly enough, um, the Batgirl movie has been axed mm-hmm. by Warner Brothers. A movie with a $90 million production budget Oof. has just been thrown away. Poof. Put on a shelf. Gone. Nobody's ever going to see it. They originally released it to, they wanted to release it to HBO Max as a um, at-home viewing experience. And now they want DC projects to be theatrical blockbusters. Uh, thanks, so Tom Cruise. It has nothing to do with the quality of the movie or any of the um, commitment to the film. It's the fact that it isn't quite made for a theatrical release, and they want to release DC movies in theaters only. It's amazing how fast these studios start knee-jerking around because the huge pivot during the pandemic was up. Ah, why bother with making things for the cinema? People just want to watch them at home and then now top gun makes like a bazillion dollars and people are like oh you know what turns out we can make more money putting in the movie theater yeah no joke man like you can't pivot everything you do based purely on a pandemic right and that's the thing they've spent 90 million dollars on this movie and now they're going to get none of that back i think that a at home release still would have been better than no release nothing. at all yeah and that's the thing they have to honor the the actor's work as well, I think. And now it's just, it's on a shelf. There's a $90 million little file somewhere, sitting somewhere. Until there's a social media push that says, release the Batgirl cut, yes, just like the Snyder yes. cut. Yep, exactly. So we'll see what they do. $90 million. They also shelved uh, Scoop, which is a Scooby-Doo uh, sequel <laughs> okay, of some right. sort. And that had a $45 million production budget as well. So uh, not really a great week in terms of making money for Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers unfortunately has a habit of chasing their tail, right? Yes, they're always yeah. they're always seemingly one step behind, whether it was some of their work with uh, Joss Wheaton and uh, and the Snyder Cut and the what what was what's that what's that group called? The Justice League. Yeah. They had all trouble with the Justice League movies, the Superman movies have been tough, the Batman movies have been up and down. Now they're struggling with some of those Suicide Squad movies. It seems like they're perpetually chasing their tail and reacting, reacting, reacting reacting instead of just for like once saying here's an idea let's try to execute it yeah let's follow through with the original plan so if you were excited for the Batgirl movie, I'm very sorry. You're not going to see it. It's just, it's not going to come out ever. <laughs> There's a saying in business that culture eats strategy for breakfast. I think Warner Brothers is a strategy company. Absolutely. Uh, Grace, thank you for this. <laughs> of course. That is Grace Scofield with the Entertainment Report. Let's bring in Nazreen Abdelmajid to find out what's trending. Nazreen, I'm curious what jumped off your screen this morning. So 
So one of Canada's top trends is hashtag Pokemon Presents. Earlier this week, the Pokemon company announced that a new Pokemon Presents will be taking place today, earlier this morning, actually. And the Pokemon company is promising new details on the franchise franchise's mobile apps and upcoming mainline games to Pokemon Scarlet and Pokemon Violet. So as for what's new in the Pokemon apps that could mean updates on the pokemon go pokemon unite pokemon masters experience pokemon cafe remix and pokemon home and i I know it's it's a long shot but also pokemon sleep um so it hasn't been that long since the birthday of pokemon and there were announcements back then earlier a couple months ago so i think the pokemon franchise is is going strong and a lot of people are looking forward to it i didn't know that was up for dispute i didn't know we were debating whether or not the pokemon franchise was uh, going strong it's always been going strong. It's been it's been forever, and it's always been strong, which I'm surprised because I'm not a Pokemon fan. So, Nazarene, I'm I'm stunned that National Clean Your Floor Day didn't uh, didn't jump it across did not your reach wire. my National top trends. Clean, very important to clean your floor. Although I don't know if yeah. we, I don't know if we did a National Day for cleaning your floor though. We do. If we're only doing National that once day, a year, that's clearly. a problem. Clearly, we need a national day. There's no, but Pokemon beat that that hashtag. So it's uh, it was a, uh, it was a tough call here. Surprise, surprise! The Pokemon beat uh, doing household chores. Turns out playing <laughs> video games more fun than doing household obviously, chores. Obviously, uh, obviously. Nazreen, thank you for this. You got it. That's Nazreen Abdel Majid letting you know what's trending. It was definitely National Clean Your Floor uh, Weekend after I took my little tumble and sprained a couple of my toes and scraped them as I was hanging out poolside with my friends. It's remarkable when you get a little cut in between your toes on the web, you bleed everywhere. So my friends, brand new pool deck, brand new house. Your boy was bleeding everywhere. Thankfully, his five-year-old son had big buckets of water and was playing and putting lava all over the deck, so we managed to clean away the lava that I left behind. That's all the time we have for the show today. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We'll be back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to clean your floor. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.